It was roughly 2,000 years ago that we began to see the greatest life ever lived. Even by secular historians' account, there is no greater person who ever walked planet Earth that had a greater impact and a greater influence than the person of Jesus. And yet what's fascinating is this, is that he never wrote a book, he never held a political office, he never led a military and yet he was born in, in the most humble and obscure of towns on the far side of the, of the earth at the time. It was an obscure place. It was an obscure town. Even his birth was obscure in the fact that he was born in basically a cave that worked as a barn. And out of this, what we refer to as the God-man, out of his life, he lived just 33 years. Only three of those years was in public kind of office or public arena. And in those three years, he, he literally put the calendar on his back because we actually date our calendar before his life and after his life is how we judge our calendar. And it is through this person of Jesus. Now, here's the thing that we run into is that we all can kind of appreciate what Jesus said and we can all appreciate what Jesus taught. We are all down with love one another, aren't we? We are all down with some of his most famous sayings and they're hung in some of our federal buildings and state buildings and they go inside of our greeting cards and we're down with what Jesus said. But today we actually celebrate this one significant historic moment. And here's what you need to know is that Christianity, as much as it is built on Jesus' teachings, even more than that, it is built on one historic event in life, the event that we refer to as the resurrection. Let's pray before we talk about that this morning. Father, we pray that God, as we look at just a few scriptures, a, a small little portion of text, that God, you would kind of speak to us and challenge us, Lord God, that you would give us something to wrestle with for the rest of our life, Lord God, that we would walk out of here God, with the rest of our life on a pursuit to make this historic event the historic event of our life, Lord. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. And we all said, if, if you have your Bible, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So, and the reason why is we're just going to look at a few scriptures this morning because the resurrection is the key event of all of Christianity. It is the hinge that the door swings on, and without it, it all falls apart. Have you ever thought about that? It was not enough that there was a great teacher. It was not enough that there was a great man. It was not even enough that there was a spectacular birth. There were other spectacular births throughout the rest of the Bible as well. What it all hinges on is this one big idea and this one big question. question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Now, some of you are out there, and you're skeptical. Some of you out there call yourselves Christians and yet struggle with the idea of the resurrection. Because let's be honest, if we put on just our good old thinking caps and we think, okay, we're saying that a person literally and actually and physically rose from the dead. I've never seen that before. So that's a bit of a leap in my mind. And you're here today and that's what you're struggling with as well. You're not against Jesus because Jesus was cool. Jesus was love. Jesus was great. Jesus was good. Now, nobody can actually get down on what Jesus was all about. But the struggle is, is was he more than just a great moral man and a great moral teacher? And it all hinges on that one big idea. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? You can sit here and say, well, Todd, I don't, I don't know. I really believe that. 
I don't know that I believe the Bible. Well, here, here's the deal. I don't believe the resurrection because of the Bible per se. I believe the resurrection because of who wrote what and who said what and what all transpired. And so that's what we'll look at today. First Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is writing and he says these words. Now, Paul is writing to a church just like I'm talking to you. And he's basically kind of laying out some ideas and thoughts. And some of them are going to be tough to swallow today. But he lays them all out for us. And how, this is how he starts. In verse number three, the Bible says this. It says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Everybody say first importance. You know that t-shirt that says I'm kind of a big deal? This is it. Jesus could wear that shirt. Look, I'm kind of a big deal. The resurrection, you know what Paul's saying? The resurrection, that, that's kind of a big deal. It's not just even, it's the big deal. It is of first importance. And let me tell you why. He says, this is the deal. That's so important. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to those scriptures. And then he changes it up. He goes, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter's name, and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom, by the way, are still living, though some of them have fallen asleep. That's their way of saying they died and passed on. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and least of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. That just means I wasn't walking with Jesus at the time. I got my head screwed on straight. I just figured this out a little bit after the fact. See, the reason why I believe in the resurrection isn't necessarily just because, well, the Bible says it. Well, it, it, it's a little more complicated. That's a little bit more detailed than that, because here's what we know, is that the Bible was written by a few different people. So, for example, like, who wrote the Well, Matthew wrote the Bible. So this guy named Matthew who was a Jewish tax collector, started following Jesus around and eventually came to the conclusion, I'm with this guy. And then after Jesus' life and death, he records this account. At the end of the account, he said, you know what I'm gonna tell you? I'm not gonna tell you what I believe. I'm gonna tell you what I saw. And I'm gonna, this is what I saw. I saw a guy that was dead. And that guy wasn't dead anymore. He was up and walking around. And there's this other guy named Mark he wasn't even a Jew. He was a Greek that hung out with these guys. And he said, let me know. I'm just going to tell you what I believe. How many know lots of people die for what they believe in? Cuckoo people. Weirdos. Normal people. Too. They die for what they believe in. I'm not asking you to die for what you believe in. I, these guys didn't die for what they believed in. You know what they died for? They died for what they said that they saw. There's this other guy named Luke who's a Greek doctor and historian and he actually goes and interviews all these people and all the disciples and all the witnesses and he goes, he basically gathers all these writings and says, hey, I'm gonna write a whole bunch of stuff and this is based on every eyewitness account that I can find and you know what I've discovered is that these guys all believe that Jesus was dead and they saw him walking around later and John's the same way. John, John just didn't didn't kind of get around it. He was at the foot of the cross while Jesus was on the cross he looks at John and says, John, I need you to take care of my mom. And he says, okay. And literally for the rest of John's life, he actually took care of Jesus' mother, who is Mary. And John has this whole account. And you know what he says? As a matter of fact, John is the one, and we know this because in his own gospel, he is quick to write that he is faster than all the other disciples. Because when they raced to the tomb, when they heard that the tomb had been opened and that Jesus' body was not there, they all ran to the tomb and John was the fastest. And I love that he put that in there. John, has, John is like me. Like if he wins, I just need to like subtly slip that in there and let you know that I won. 
That's why I don't make a great first impression. That's why you like me after you get to know me. And so John's saying here, let me tell you, I, I don't want to tell you what I believe. Let me tell you what I saw. I saw an empty tomb. And then later I saw Jesus walking around and talking after he'd been dead for three days and three nights. And there's, and there's other people that it's not just these guys. Peter goes on to say the same thing. You, you know what might be the greatest witness of Jesus' resurrection? Is there's a guy named James. Now, does anybody know who James is in the Bible? It's Jesus' brother. Now, if there's anybody that's kind of proof that Jesus actually rose from the dead and was the son of God, it had to be James. And here's why. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was the son of God? <laughs> like, like, literally, like, because James is like, no, 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 we, we play kickball together. He is awful. There's no way he's the son of God. We, we grew up together. He, you know, he, no, there's no way. What would your brother have to do to convince you that you were the son of God. And here's the reality too, and we know this about James. James didn't even like following Jesus or believe that Jesus was the son of God until after the resurrection. The whole Bible records that James basically took issue with his brother and didn't want to follow and didn't want to be a part and thought he was being weird and crazy. And it was only after the resurrection that James became the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. Are you, are you following me here? I'm not asking you to believe in something because I believe in it. I'm asking you to believe in something because somebody took witness of what they saw. Now, here's what else is crazy about these guys. You want to hear what else is crazy? All of these guys died for not what just they believed, but they all died for what they saw. John was the only one that ended up dying of natural causes, but all the other disciples other than Judas, the other 10, they all died and were killed. You're like, Peter, remember this. Peter was crucified upside down because he said, no, 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 no. Jesus is God and Nero, you're not. I promise. And it's not based on what I believe. It's based on what I've seen. And he was crucified upside down alongside of his family because he was willing to die. Now, here, here's the issue, because I've heard all kinds of people try to like, well, you know, the, the, you know, the disciples stole the body or this or that. Now, listen, here's the deal. Would you tell a lie? Of course you would. Don't, don't lie. Of course you. And, and, so, so we've all told a lie. Like, I remember being a kid, and you ever get caught, and you start running that lie? There's only so long before, like, you can get away with it. If the pressure gets too high, you'll eventually snap, won't you? you eventually break. How many of you know, like, the pressure's so high that I'm hung upside down being crucified alongside of my wife and children, and I'm like, nope, I've got to hang on to this lie. That's some pretty intense pressure. You know, other people say, well, they collaborated together. Well, look, somebody's going to crack, isn't it? You put ten guys together, and you all start ratcheting up the heat on this thing. Eventually, one of them's going to break. Wouldn't you be the first one? Like, no, no, it was them. They, they, they forced me. If you'll just punish them, I'll, I'll tell you the whole truth. None of them broke. Let me give you the history of the disciples in, in somewhat of an order. Again, Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified. Matthew was killed with the sword. James, the brother of, 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 of Jesus, he was crucified. Philip, crucified. Simon, crucified. Thaddeus, killed by arrows. Thomas, run through with a spear. Bartholomew, crucified. These guys all died martyrs deaths not because of what they believed but rather based on what they saw and here's the reality of it too there's this guy named dr simon greenleaf who is a lawyer he is the lawyer that put harvard law on the map and made harvard law what it is you know in his own words this is what he says he says that that according to basic legal evidence 
that the resurrection of Christ is one of the best supported events in history according to the laws of legal evidence administered in the courts of justice. And here's why. They just took all the facts and they said, okay, if there's nobody, because how many know if anybody wanted to get rid of the resurrection, it was the Jews and the Romans. Basically, it was everybody but the disciples wanted to get rid of the resurrection because it was making a mess of everybody's deal and making a mess of everybody's stuff. And the Romans didn't want to fight against this thing. How many know if there was a body laying around, they were going to go grab it. And if anybody dragged bodies through the streets or hung them in the public courtyard, it was the Romans to prove. And the Jews, they wanted to get rid of this thing. They didn't want them messing up their religion. They said, this this whole Jesus Messiah thing, this is throwing off our world. Everybody would have eventually wanted to find the body of Jesus. I'm telling you that this is the real deal. Not based on what I believe and not based on what they believe, but based on what they, what they saw. Just a thought. Let's keep reading. So the Bible says, and Paul continues, and if, everybody say if, and if Christ has not been raised, here's the problem that you run into. Our preaching is useless. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? He's basically saying, look, I know I wrote two-thirds or half of the New Testament things that we call Scripture, Half of what is the New Testament, I wrote that. But here's the deal. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you can throw that away. Just toss it all out. It's worthless. It's garbage. Burn it up. It's useless. As a matter of fact, when you, when you remember you got married and somebody got up read uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, like love is patient, love is kind, love is, throw that out. That's gone. That cannot be in your wedding. You know when you went to that funeral and they, they said all those things about heaven Where do you think they got that stuff from? You gotta throw that out. Because the very guys, like John wrote more about heaven than any other person in the entirety of the Bible. And he's the one that said, no, no, this is what I saw with my own eyes. That whole idea of heaven, every picture you have in your mind being a westernized person, you got that from the Bible. You may not have known that, and you may not even totally, you know, there's some other views of heaven, but the heaven view that you typically have, that came from John. And John said Jesus rose from the dead. And, and, and Paul is saying this, our preaching, that's stupid. you got to throw that out. If Christ has not been raised. And he, he also said this, and so is your faith. Like your faith, your belief that God is good. or God. Because let's, let's be honest, many of us are out there are like, well, yeah, well, I don't know that I believe in the resurrection, but I, I believe God is good and God is love. Where did you get that from? Like really, no, 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 where did you get that from? Because all the other views of God throughout the world are not exactly like that. They're way different. Where where did you get that? The the whole faith that you have in God, that's no good. More than that, we have found to be false witnesses about God. Verse 17, and if Christ, everybody say if. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And guess what? We're all in our sins. Like, that's it. This is who we are. We are in our sin and we are probably destined for all kinds of bad things in our future and bad things in eternity because we're just stuck as we are. And there's really not a lot of hope for us out there. We're stuck in our sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're what? They're lost. Remember how the preacher was like, you know, one day you can be with grandma again or you can be with you. Because like, and funerals are hard. I'm not trying to make light of this. And I don't think Paul's trying to be insensitive either because many of us have buried loved ones and buried our parents or, or, or our spouse or God forbid even our children. And like, this is a terrible deal. And that preacher gets up and he says, you know what? You, you can be with them again one day in heaven. Where did that come from? And Paul's saying, look, that's just not the reality. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, this whole thing, lost. And lost doesn't mean in hell. I mean, if you grew up Baptist, that's what you always thought, right? 
You were lost. You were in hell. But that's not what he meant here. Right? How many ever lost your keys? Right? Do you ever think your keys were in hell when you couldn't find them? No. I said, what, he, what he was saying, your loved ones, we don't know where they are. That's what he's saying. He's like, we, we, we just don't know. I don't know. They're just out floating. Or I, I don't know where they're at. And so he comes up with all these things that says basically, if, and in verse 19, he caps it off and says, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we're of people most to be pitied. You know, you know what he's saying here? He goes, you know what? If you're a Christian and you've lived your whole life and the resurrection isn't real, people should feel sorry for you. Like all those prayers you prayed, that was a waste of time. All that money you gave to missions and to helping the poor and building wells, that was, you should, you should have gone and bought a boat. Like you should be at the lake right now. Like being at church on a Sunday morning, you are wasting your time. You should be at the lake right now. You should go to the beach with some ski from all the money that you should have not given to help other people because that doesn't, like, like, like if you're a Christian and the resurrection is not real, we have all been duped and we have all been wasting our time. This is kind of a harsh challenge he gives out here because this is what he's trying to make the big confrontation. Either Christ is risen from the dead or everything else is nothing. It all hinges on this one historical event. And here's what I want you to wrestle with today and for the rest of your life. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because if he did, he demands my absolute attention. He demands my following him. He demands me surrendering to him. He demands me acknowledging who he was. This is the way I figure. I figure if you can predict your own death and burial and pull it off, I'm going to listen to what you have to say. There's this other element that we look at when you look at all of the Old Testament scriptures. They were written hundreds of years before the time of Christ. I don't know if you know this or not, but all these predictions and prophecies about one man, a Messiah, who would come and do all these things. And there's all these predictions. And Jesus fulfills so many of them. There's some that the Bible says he'll fulfill in his second coming, but so many of them were fulfilled. There's eight in particular that they have, be his, his burial, his death, the manner in which he was crucified, all the different elements that correspond. And they've done like weird weirdly smart, crazy smart people who are mathematicians have actually done the odds on any one human being fulfilling all of these prophecies. Like one of them is this, like when you were born. Did anybody get to pick when you were born? Hey, we, we got lucky though, didn't we? We got really good that we got born in the day and the time. How many of you, how many got to pick where you were born? Jesus didn't get to pick any of that stuff. And when you put all these prophecies together, they came up with a number. You know what the number is? It's 10 decillion to one. You know what that means? I don't either. It's like a 10. It's like a 10 with a whole slew of zeros behind it. Somebody really smart will know what decillion is. I think that's one of those made up words. Like after you get to trillion, what, what's next? I don't know. So, so anyway, 10 decillion to one. And here's the illustration that they gave. Do you want to hear it? Check this out. They said that if you covered the landmass of Texas and you looked at how much that, you could fill up the entire state of Texas a half a foot deep with silver dollars. They said that's 10 decillion silver dollars. It would take the entire Texas landmass covered a half a foot deep. That's 10 decillion. So the odds of one person fulfilling all the predictions of the Old Testament is 10 decillion. You know what? This, this is what this would be like. If I took you and I took you down to like maybe the Gulf of Mexico to like the little tip at the very bottom, I think it's Corpus Christi. We'd just take you there. We blindfolded you. You know, spun you around three times. And hold on. And I go into Texas. I get to go anywhere I want. And I put an X on one of those coins. And I flip it over and I do this. And then I go back to you and I push you out into Texas. The odds of you finding the one silver dollar 
with the X on it is the likelihood that Jesus was not who he said that he was. I'm not talking about I want you to believe in something because I believe in it. I want you to believe in it because there's a legitimate amount of evidence for you to struggle with it and wrestle with it. And if there's even the hint that it's true, I need you to lean into that. And I'm telling you, there's more than a hint that it's true. There's a vast, overwhelming amount of evidence that it's true. And, and here's what we know. Just logically speaking, your best bet's to go with Jesus. Like, have, have you ever thought about that? Like, people say, well, I'm too smart for that. No, you're not. You're stupid. Here's why. Okay, if, if, you have, if, if, if you have two doors, and behind one door I say either there's, there's nothing or there's a big angry bear, you know what I mean? Like, like, you got options there, don't you? Like, which door am I going to choose? Which door would you always go with? Like, you get to choose which door it is. Do you take the door with the bear or do you take the door with the it, right? You would always just logically choose that because here's the reality. If God is not real and you believe in him, do you know what you've lost? Nothing. Do you know if you get staunch and angry and mad and say, I'm not going to believe in God and you're wrong, you know what you lose? Logically speaking, just to follow Jesus, even if there's a thought that he was who he said he was, is the most logical solution in the world. Because if you follow him and it wasn't real, you've lost nothing. But if you've chosen not to follow him and it was all true, you've lost everything. Go see reading. Verse number 20, the Bible says this. It says, but Christ has indeed been risen from the dead. This is how he closes. He goes, but here's the deal. All that stuff I said, it's true. But here's what I need you to know. It really did happen. I'm not telling you what I believe. I'm telling you what I've seen with my own eyes, what I've heard with my own ears. I'm telling you, and if you go back, it wasn't just a few. The Bible says this. The Bible says that Jesus showed himself to up to 500 people at one time, and many of those are still living, although some of them, don't get me wrong, some of them did die. This was, about, this was written about 20 years after the resurrection. He goes, Don't worry, it's been 20 years, some people died. But there's still a whole group of people. What, Jesus, or what Paul is saying here is this, the resurrection is so real and so true, I want you to saddle up a donkey and I want you to head to Jerusalem and I want you to ask whoever you can find because there's a whole group of people that will tell you Jesus has risen from the dead and this is the hinge that the whole door swings on. This is everything. Without this, nothing matters. We're still in our sins, our faith is stupid, we're wasting our time. But I'm telling you, he has indeed risen from the dead. And here's the, here's, here's the kicker right here. This is a big Jewish statement. He goes, Christ is indeed risen from the dead. He's the first fruits. Everybody say first fruits. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Here's what first fruits meant to a, a Jewish guy like Paul back in the day. Every Jewish person at this time of year would go to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast season. In this feast, they had Passover, which many of us have heard about, Unleavened bread and first fruits. It was all these three ideas built into one big feast season. And here's what first fruits was. First fruits basically was, was towards the end of the week. If, if you know the real deal, here's, here's the reality of it. Jesus was crucified on Passover. He was buried at the beginning of unleavened bread. And he was risen on first fruits. I don't know how they missed this, but they missed it. And on first fruits, on the day of first fruits when it started, here's what they would do. Is every, every person needed to bring an offering to the temple. And it was called a wave offering. And they would wave it and it would go up in smoke and burn and all, all this stuff. And here's what the first fruit offering actually meant to them. 
The first fruits meant it was the very first of all of my harvest. It was the barley season in that, in that time of day or in time of year and time of place. And so, so anyway, they took their very first start of their offering and they would give it to God. And what, here's what would happen. As soon as their offering went up, they believed it was accepted by God and that meant that the rest of it was accepted by God as well. When the first went up, it meant everybody else was blessed. When the first went up, everybody else would be taken care of. When the first went up, the rest of it was underneath God's care and provision and protection. Let me tell you what Paul's saying. As Jesus has risen and gone up to his heavenly Father, he is the first fruits. And now that he has been accepted by God, you have been accepted by God. You're accepted. You're in. All you have to do is take a step of faith. You're in. It's that easy. It is that simple. Jesus was trying to find ways to get you in. Jesus loved you so much, he would, just, he would stretch theology to try to get you in. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he cares. Go beyond the fact that he was brutally beaten and crucified. He did everything he could to get you in. And he wanted to say, look, I'm telling you, I'm the first fruits of all creation. And because I've been accepted by God, you can be accepted by God. As you are. When you come to him, you come to him with your junk, your mess, your brokenness, your doubt, your disbelief. Bring it all. God will work out the rest. Just bring yourself just as you are. Last story and I'm gonna close. There's a, a, an interesting story I had read recently about the famous painter Raphael. If you grew up with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know who that is. Um, I, just, I just dated myself right there. Raphael was, a, was a, obviously a famous painter. And in 1505, he painted a beautiful work of art for his friend as a gift to his wedding. It was called the Madonna della Cardellino. I think I said that right. I'm not Italian. And it was this amazing, beautiful picture. And it was actually a picture of a woman with two children playing with a bird. And it was represented that the woman was Mary and the two kids were John the Baptist and his cousin Jesus. And the bird that was playing amongst the thorns was representative of Christ's future sufferings. And it was this amazing, beautiful picture. 50 years after he painted that piece, where it was hung in a home, there was a, it was a great earthquake that destroyed the home, and thus destroying the painting, and it was broken into 17 different pieces. So a painter of a newer era came along and said, I can fix this. And so he tried to stretch it back together and sew it back together and kind of repaint over the stitching to try to cover it up, and he actually made a mess of it. So you know what? For generation after generation, a painter would come along and say, here, I'm gonna fix this, and they would try to work over and paint over and put back together and try to put this masterpiece back into its original form until finally they quit and they gave up on it. It sat unprotected, for years and years and years. And I don't know if you know this about paintings, but they just slowly collect a level of dust and grime over them if they're not protected properly. In 2008, they found this painting and decided they were gonna restore it based on the new technology that they had been given and their ability to restore things. And so here, here's what they did. They took a 50-man team, and it took them 10 years I sorry, I said 2008. It was finished in 2008, so they got it in 1998, and it took them 10 years to restore it with a 50-person team. And what they did was they slowly just began to strip down and take care of and make new again and restore this amazing, beautiful picture. Until now, it's incredible. All the blues are brighter and the reds, and they brought it back to its original intent and its original design. 
And now this painting is more famous because of its restoration than it is even because of its original work. Here's what I want to tell you this morning. Is that ever since Jesus was risen from the grave, he has been in the restoration process. He has been in the restoration business. And here's what I know about my life and here's what I know about your life. Is that we have all been through a lot of shakeups. We have all been beaten and bruised and broken by life and hammered by life. And we, you, know, you know what we try to do? I try to do this. I try to say, you know what, I can fix this. You know what I'll do? I'll just try to cover this up. I'll just try to put this back together in my life. And you know what I found? That didn't work. It didn't work when I tried to put myself back together again. And I want to let you know and encourage you this morning that Jesus is in the restoration business. And how, no matter how broken or damaged your life you, you think it is, no matter how much sin you think you have in your past, the Bible, you know what Jesus said about sin? He says, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Meaning like, you can't beat me. Like, you can't out my grace. I win every time. I'm in the restoration business. You can't out-damage what I can fix. I'm better than you. Whatever you think you can break, I can put it back together again. I promise. Watch. Give it to me. Let me in. Again, I want you to put Jesus back in his proper, back in his proper place in your life, that Jesus truly was the Son of God. And we don't have to just believe in that because other people believe in that and we just kind of hope that it's true. But we can believe on that because that's what they saw and that's what history backs up and that's what evidence support and that's what mathematicians support and that's what history, I'm telling you, this is a big deal. That's why he said this is of first importance. I want you to let Jesus into your life to restore and mend and put back together again because here's what I know is that Jesus can make you better and restore you to a better place in life than you have ever seen, than you have ever imagined. I promise he can do that. That's how great he is. Let's pray this morning. Today, Jesus, is a day that we celebrate your resurrection, and it is because of your resurrection that we have new life. God, it's because of your resurrection that, that I can be forgiven, that my faith can firmly be grounded. God, that I'm not in my sins anymore. God, that I have a hope for the future and a hope for eternity. God, it's because of your resurrection. It's all because of you, Jesus. My prayers have not been in vain. My giving has not been in vain. My faith has not been in vain. It hasn't been worthless. I'll be able to see loved ones again all because of your resurrection, Jesus. And God, I want to let you into my heart and let you into my mind and let you into my life and let you into my world. And God, I want you to put the pieces back together because God, you are in the resurrection business. You are in the restoration business. You give life like no one gives life. And Jesus, I thank you for that. I want to give you a challenge and an opportunity today. I want you to keep your head bowed and your eye closed. And, and you know what? If you're here today and you say, man, I've been, I've been struggling, Todd, that whole Jesus thing, the whole resurrection thing, but I know I need to make the leap. I need to take a step of faith. And today's your day. I'm telling you, it's your shot. It's your chance. It's the best time you will ever have in your life. And here's what I know is today, if you make that decision, you will make the greatest historical event in all of human history your greatest historical event in all of your history. And if you say, man, I've been away from God, I've been away from, man, I've been to church since I was a kid. Mom drugged me here and promised me ham after church. I don't care what your story is, but if you say it is time and I am ready to put my faith in Jesus, then on the count of three, I just want you to slip your hand up in the air as a sign to God and say, God, I need you. God, I'm ready. God, I'm not even sure. Can I tell you this? You can raise your hand and pray a prayer and even have some doubts in your heart. I just want you to take a step of faith. God will meet you where you're at. The Bible says it when we when we make a motion towards God, that God takes a motion towards us. He's waiting. He'll do anything he can to bring you closer to him. And so on the count of three, if you need God to be in your life and you want Jesus to forgive you of your sins and you want Jesus to begin the restoration process, on the count of three, just raise that hand up. One, two, 
three and slip that hand up in the air. Come on, slip it up high. Slip it high. There's nothing to be ashamed of. You got nothing to worry about. You're just making the greatest decision you will ever make in your life right now. Keep it up. Leave it up. Absolutely. Praise God. Here's what I know. I, I got saved back when I was 17 years old. I've lived a, a, a really wild teenage set of years. Um, I've been living for Jesus for basically the same amount of time on the other end now. Can I tell you? I wouldn't go back for nothing. It's not worth it. And what Christ has given me is so amazing. It's so special. There's no going back.